Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22 as we continue our study in the last days of the life of our Lord Jesus. We're in a portion uh, that speaks particularly of his sufferings. Uh, Luke chapter 22. And if you're um, searching for a pew Bible, there's a black pew Bible. It's on page 883. Here at Redeemer, we believe the Bible is God's word and it is true and everything it says and authoritative. So we pay attention to it. So we're at Luke 22, the story of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus. If you have ever been the innocent target of mistreatment or injustice, then you can sympathize with Jesus, and Jesus sympathizes with you. Tonight we're going to see that the high priest, the chief priests, the elders of Israel, tortured and condemned the Lord Jesus. Judas had betrayed him, Peter had denied him, and now the church of his day thrashed and rejected him. Let me invite you to consider this tonight from Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 63. Hear now the word of God. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless us with the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, that you would lift him before our eyes, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, to hold his glory even in his humiliation. We pray that you would do good to our souls through our understanding and believing of what's in your word. So be our teacher, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The football world, the high school football world in particular, was scandalized of late. Uh, no, uh, not by you know an Arkansas loss or an Alabama loss or a Texas loss, although misery does love company, but this is high school football. It was scandalized when just over the last month we've learned that two high school football players targeted an unsuspecting referee coming up from behind, one at full speed, knocked him down, 
and another then dove on top of him. Uh, Authorities are considering criminal charges. The latest story comes actually from New Jersey, where one football player tore the helmet off his opponent in mid-play. Then while that unhelmeted player was down on the ground, the one holding the helmet took it and swung it at his head, connecting. (laughs) Yes, you're saying football is a full-contact sport, but it's not supposed to be like that. Something is really really wrong when its participants and its referees are criminally abused and treated purposefully unjustly. (laughs) We should be outraged. And that is how Jesus was treated. A gentle man was beaten. A merciful man was mocked. An innocent man was condemned for being who he was the true and everlasting God. What we have in this text before us is before his crucifixion, Jesus was both tortured and he was put on trial. There are actually a number of trials. We're at the first uh, kind of trial. It's the ecclesiastical trials. There's going to be a civil trial by the Roman authorities, but here it's the Jewish governing authorities, a church trial, a religious trial, Trial And what we have here is actually the culmination of uh, and the climax of the religious Jewish ecclesiastical trial. There's more to it. The other gospel writers tell us about this is the end of it. So we're thinking about his torture and his trial tonight. And I want to highlight three things with you by asking three questions. First, how was Jesus treated? Secondly, what does that reveal about him? And thirdly, what can we learn from this? In the first place, how was our Lord Jesus treated? Well, it was night. He had already been betrayed by Judas. He'd been denied by Peter. He'd been arrested. And the apostle tells us that there was an informal meeting with the former high priest, Annas. John tells us this. And Matthew, Mark uh, tell us that there had been a nighttime meeting following that with Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. Annas had been the former chief high priest, then the son-in-law had become high priest, and they had brought Jesus before them in the middle of the night. Uh, Then Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke here telling you, that then in the morning at daybreak, they came together again before Caiaphas and the whole council of elders, that's the Sanhedrin, 70 elders plus the high priest. Luke records that meeting here. And it's the culmination of this. He's placed into the custody of the temple police, and then he's brought before these religious leaders. What did the temple police do to him? Notice where, Mark, or where Luke begins this text. He says they began by beating him and bullying him. They blindfolded him and they blasphemed him. They played games with him. They had their fun at his expense. They mocked him as they beat him, and they put the blindfold on him and and played, played a game. Who hits you? If you can prophesy, if you're a prophet, Jesus, tell us who it was. And they did many other things like this against him. And then came the religious trial where he was treated unjustly. Uh, How unjustly at the trial? They broke many of their own laws. For instance, we know, according to their own rules, uh, that if a man was arrested for a capital crime, and they believe Jesus is worthy of death, uh, 
then no one, uh, no one cooperating in the arrest could be connected to the one who is accused. No arrest could be made based upon information given by a follower or colleague of the accused because they felt that if the accused was guilty, so were his followers. But the entire plot revolved around Judas, one of his own disciples, giving him up. It was against their rules. And we know that, secondly, the members of the Jewish court, after hearing testimony in a capital crime, could not immediately act and judge. They were supposed to go home and sit on it, at least for a full day and night. They were to mull it over. They were to think through the evidence. They were to consider whether they ought to be merciful. They they ought to wait to see if there was more evidence brought. The language of the code said this, eat like food, drink like wines, sleep well, and once again return and hear the testimony of the accused. Then and only then shall you render a vote. (laughs) But they didn't do that. The Jewish court never left the presence of Caiaphas, and it didn't give a whole night and day. And then thirdly, their vote was supposed to be taken from the youngest to the oldest. And you can imagine why. So that the oldest, wisest, most influential and powerful, didn't influence the vote of the youngest. But the youngest man was to vote first, followed all the way up the chain until the eldest finally cast their vote. But that never happened in this trial. They all, in one voice, just condemned him to death. Fourthly, he wasn't given a defense attorney. And fifthly, he was asked to stand as his own accuser to incriminate himself. And you might recognize that in our uh, jurisprudence. You have the freedom to plead the fifth, to, to not incriminate yourself. Jesus was not given that option. There were lots of other unjust things they did in this trial. But the point is, they were to be people of the book, and they didn't even follow their own rules And they rushed to judgment. They condemned him uh, as guilty. And in this spectacle, what do we see? Well, we see God highlighting his own son's innocence in contrast to the wicked conduct of his judges. He was honorable, and they were not. And that is very clear as you read these trials. And I simply want to add again, if you yourself have ever been the innocent victim of criminal injustice, then you have a God who gets it. You have a God in Jesus who has been right where you are. And if you have ever been physically and verbally bullied, mocked by others, even mistreated by authorities, then you have a God who gets that, who's been right where you are. Who knows how to help That's the first thing I want you to see. This is what they did to him. They abused him and they treated him unjustly. But what does this reveal about him? What, what does this story tell us about Jesus? It tells us four things about him very pointedly. That he is a prophet, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of Man, and that he is the Son of God. Everything here is designed in, in some ways to reveal to us who Jesus Really and truly is. First, he's the prophet. They blindfold him and ask him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Now, he doesn't play that game with them that night because he didn't use his prophetic abilities to play games. They were poking fun at him for claiming to be a prophet. 
They're toying with him, but ironically, they're actually fulfilling his prophecies as they do so. I simply want to point you to Luke chapter 18, verse 31 and following, where Jesus said, I know this is coming, and I'm telling you it's coming. In Luke 18, verse 31, he took the 12 and he said, see... We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. He knew this was coming. He expected this to happen. He was, after all, a true prophet. (laughs) In Luke 6, verses 22 and 23, Jesus had said this, Blessed are you. When people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And as their fathers did to the prophets, beating and torturing So they did to Jesus, this great climactic prophet. His abuse, the abuse of him, puts him in in line and in standing with all the great prophets who've gone before. And so you're seeing here, he is a true prophet. Now at verse 67, they ask him, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus gives the good confession. He acknowledges that he is the true prophet. Christ, the true, long-promised Savior and King, the anointed one, the Messiah. He says to them, however, he puts it this way, if I tell you, you will not believe. Verse 68, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Now what is he doing there? Well, he knew that they had already concluded that he wasn't the Messiah, certainly not the Messiah they were looking for. So he said, you won't believe me if I tell you that I'm the Messiah. (laughs) They hadn't previously ever believed him. (laughs) And then he asks them, if I ask you, meaning if I ask you what the promised Messiah is supposed to be, and what the Messiah is supposed to do, you're not going to answer me. You're not going to be straight with me. You won't say it because I can show you in the Bible that I fulfill the promise of the Messiah. But you don't even want to have that discussion with me is what Jesus is saying here. They hadn't believed his previous words. They hadn't believed his previous works. They hadn't believed the miracles he had done in their faces. (laughs) They certainly weren't going to believe him when he said he was the Messiah there. But Jesus held to the good confession. He acknowledged, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you have long wanted. And I have come for you. So he's the prophet. He's the Messiah. And he goes on to speak of himself as the son of man. And that's the third thing we see about him. In verse 69 he says, But from now on the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus This was his favorite expression for himself. This is how he most often spoke of himself when he gave himself a title, son of man. It means more than that he's a human or that he's a male child of a human being. Uh, It's a very well-known phrase in the Old Testament. The Jews were extremely familiar with this phrase. Uh, One classic place it's picked up is in Daniel 
the prophet Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where there's, Daniel has this vision of heaven itself and the ancient of days is on his throne and one is brought before him. It says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is saying, that is me. I am that son of man. This is who they are judging to be worthy of death. And in telling them this, in following up their question about, are you the Messiah? And he says, yes, I am. But I'm the son of man of Daniel chapter 7. He's pointing them there and he's saying to them, be careful now. You don't understand all that I am. I am more than you think I am. And I am different than you imagine me to be. In uh, Warren Wiersbe's book, Meet Yourself in the Psalms, he tells about a frontier town where a horse had bolted and run away with a wagon carrying a little boy. Seeing the child in danger, a young man risked his life to catch the horse and stop the wagon. The child, who was rescued, grew up to become a lawless man. One day he stood before a judge to be sentenced for a serious crime. The prisoner recognized the judge as the man who years before had rescued him and saved his life. And so he pled for mercy from that judge on the basis of that prior experience. But the words from the bench silenced his plea. Young man, then I was your savior. Today, I am your judge, and I must sentence you to be hanged. And one day, Christ is saying to them, and he's saying through that story to all of us, I have come that you may have life. The Father did not send his Son into the world that the world might be condemned, but that the world might be saved. And today is the day of salvation, Jesus is saying to them. But one day I will come back. I rule and I'm, you're gonna, I'm, I'm, not gonna be, I'm gonna be ascended to the right hand of the throne of power and glory. And from there I will judge my judgers. I will sit in the seat of judgment against you, Jesus is warning them. The just judge will judge the unjust judges who judge him worthy of disdain. And so he says, I am the son of man. And you will behold me in glory. And then he says, I am also the son of God. They follow this up, wanting to be sure they've understood him correctly, connecting the son of man from Daniel 7 with the idea of Messiah, claiming all of that for himself. In verse 70 they say, so then are you the son of God? (laughs) Not just the son of man, but son of God. What really are you claiming? And Jesus says to them, I am. Now he put it this way, you say that I am. (laughs) Now he's not being coy with them there. He's not saying, I never said it, you did. That's not what he's doing. He's actually affirming it. You have said that I am, that is in fact who I am, is what he is saying. On December 26, 
1767, the day after Christmas, 36 prisoners, some of them sick and broken, stumbled out of the Tower of Constance. It was, uh, it was a tower uh, that was built on the Mediterranean Sea in France. Among those who stumbled out was Marie Durand. She had been in the tower 38 years. It, the tower had originally served as a lighthouse. It had been converted by King Louis XIV into a woman's prison, and the prisoners, all of them, were crowded into an upper room. Their crime was that they were Protestants, and their monarch was Roman Catholic, who forbade them to gather in worship as Protestants. But some of them had been meeting in private, they had been reading their Bibles daily, and they were breaking the law in doing so, and Durant's brother Pierre had been a Protestant pastor, but he had been arrested and shot. Durant's father had been arrested, her new husband, she had just been married, he had been arrested, and then she likewise was arrested, and she remained in that tiny room with nearly 40 people for 38 years. All she had to do to be released was say, I recant. All she had to do to be released was to say two little words, and they would have let her go, but she did not. And here, all Jesus has to say is, I am not what you have just said I am. But he did not do that. He gave the good confession, and he sealed his own death. When he did so, he is the son of God. Now, how do we know that's what he means, that he is true God here? Well, they immediately find him guilty of what? They find him guilty of blasphemy based on his own words. Verse 71, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves with our own lips. So Jesus has said to them, I'm the son of God, not a son of God, but the Son of God, the only and unique, special Son of God, God of God, light of light, God in the flesh on the earth. And it was blasphemy to say that if you aren't, in fact, God. (laughs) But if you are God, and He was, then He's not guilty of blasphemy. Now, listen, sometimes you'll hear people claim that Jesus was misunderstood by the early church, by early Christians, early believers, that, that, that uh, the church misunderstood Jesus to be claiming to be God, but he never really did, that he was just a great teacher or a great prophet, a great religious leader, and an important martyr we all ought to follow. Or people will say, well, no, it's not that the church didn't misunderstand, but actually they made up the very idea that Jesus is God, and they did it hundreds of years after Jesus was on earth, and then they snuck it all into the Bible. But notice that it's his enemies here who understood him to be claiming to be God. That's why they charge him with blasphemy. It was his enemies, not his friends, who got it, who understood that he was the prophet, the Messiah, and the Son of Man, and the Son of God. And you now, my friends, cannot claim ignorance about who Jesus is. Do not join his enemies in rejecting him. These are four of the things we learn about Jesus, but what can we all learn from this? Let me just highlight four more things, four lessons we can take away from this. In the first place, do not be surprised by unbelief. You can have Jesus 
staring you in the face, affirming to you all that he is. (laughs) And you can still reject him. That's what these people did. It's not for lack of evidence that they rejected him. It's not because he hasn't been truthful that they rejected him. The problem is the refusal to believe the evidence that you have been shown, that you have been given. And why do we do that? We do that because of the hardness of our own hearts, not for lack of evidence. The fact is people don't want to follow Jesus. People have already decided in their hearts they don't want anything to do with Jesus. People have already decided I want to be my own king and my own God and write my own rules and not listen to this king and walk in his ways. And so I don't want anything to do with him, whether it's his salvation or whether it's his lordship. Never be surprised by unbelief. And so if you're a Christian and you're talking to your friends about the good news or family members, would you remember that some people you can talk to until you're blue in the face? You can argue the entire Bible with them and prove it all is true. And they will see Jesus in the Bible and they will not give in. And the best thing you can do is pray for them because what your words cannot do, God can do. God can change hearts. And that is exactly what must happen if somebody is to go from unbelief to belief, from death to life. That's the first thing. Don't be surprised by unbelief. Secondly, don't be surprised if religious people persecute you as you follow Jesus. Don't be surprised when it's religious people who oppose you. People who claim to be part of the church. People who claim to be Christians. People who claim to believe the Bible as these men did. But then reject its clear and unambiguous teachings about Jesus. Or about salvation by his atonement. Or about other clear and unambiguous teachings like marriage and sexuality and hell never be surprised if you're trying to follow jesus and his word on these things and it is the religious people the people even in churches who come out most strongly against you that's who's opposing jesus here they may even accuse you of blasphemy of you of dishonoring god because you believe the bible But Jesus is believing the truth about himself here and declaring it. What should you do if that's the case? 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter tells you in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Go then and do likewise after the pattern of Jesus. Don't fight your enemies and revile your enemies. But as Jesus did, entrust yourself to God. That's the second thing. Don't be surprised if it's religious people who oppose you for believing the Bible. Thirdly, don't be surprised by your own sin. (laughs) Even your own blasphemy. For blasphemy is a problem with all of us. None are guiltless in this sin. 
This is, after all, the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin of our first parents, when they said in the Garden of Eden, believing the lie that we shall be as God if we just disobey what God told us to do. We'll be like God. They wanted to make themselves God. And this is our blasphemy too. We do it in all manner of ways, one of which is just simply making too little of Jesus and too much of ourselves. What then should we do if that's us? If that's us, ask yourself this question. Who beat Jesus and who condemned Jesus to death? The famous composer Bach wrote an album called St. Matthew's Passion. And there's a point in the narrative of it uh, when he gets to this point in the gospel text and the music is playing and the song is being sung, Who is it that hit you? The choir sings. And do you know what the response is? I. I and my sins. That's what Bach would say to us tonight. Who is it that hit you, Jesus? Who is it that took their hand and slapped you across the face? And Bach says it was I. My sins did that to Jesus. So if you discover that you think much too highly of yourself and much too little of Jesus, and in that sense blaspheme him, would you remember that yes, it is in fact your sin, and it is your sin that killed Christ but Christ delighted to die for your sin. Would you think of this last thing? Don't be surprised by his love. Had he willed it, he could have stopped this insolence in a heartbeat. He could have called down thousands and legions of angels to rescue him with a word. Jesus cast devils out of people with a word. He could have knocked them all flat on their backs. But it was his heart To do the great work of actually going to the cross as a blasphemer and a traitor. To do so in our place because that's what we are before God. So he became what he was not. A condemned criminal. So that we could become what we are not. And that is innocent before God through faith in him. Oh friends, do you know how loved you are? by him that he would do this for you and do you know what it cost him though he delighted to do it let's pray our lord jesus we give you thanks we praise your name be lifted up in our hearts and before our eyes and draw us to yourself and forgive all of our sins for we ask it in your name amen Let's stand together and sing as we prepare to come to the Lord's table.